What should we call it when well-intended idealism eclipses reality? When an insistent dogmatism causes city leaders to deny the circumstances that surround them? When a group think obstinance permeates seemingly every social political discussion? Well, my guest today calls it San Francisco. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. For a long time, San Francisco's housing shortage has been a riddle without an answer, which means for those living on the streets, it is a problem without a solution. So today, housing activists gathered in Union Square to protest. The protesters displayed paper flowers to symbolize the estimated 10,000 people living on the street. I have been here since 1973 and in this current residence since 1988, and it has never been this horrific. Tent encampments, the most visible bellwether of this crisis, seem to be arriving in waves. I have never seen the level of frustration as high as it is now. Um, and I hear daily from people who are saying they are selling, they are leaving. We reached out to the city's Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for this story. So far, no one has been made available to speak with us. Since it was Pontius Pilate who asked the question, what is truth? I suppose we could slightly amend that and change it by putting the article, the, T-H-E, what is the truth? We live in a time when people seem to have a multiplicity of truths, your truth, my truth, their truth, virtually anybody's truth. But in this process, of at least trying to seek the truth, we find that we change. As one of the things I say to my university students frequently, you have come to college, you've come to university to change. Some people don't change, others do. My guest has changed substantially. He is Michael Schellenberger, and his latest work is entitled San Francisco. It's a look at why progressives sometimes ruin cities. So it is my pleasure to welcome him to Watching America. Welcome, Michael Schellenberger. Thanks for having me. Um, what inspired the book? First of all, I, I have to uh, declare and say that I have a great affinity for San Francisco and Marin County. I lived there for 11 years. I lived in Mill Valley and I lived in San Francisco the majority of the time. So when you make reference to this beloved city of mine, indeed the city by the bay where I, I did leave, if not my entire heart, a major portion of it, uh, I'm immediately uh, alighted with interest. So what was the, uh, if you will, the genesis of deciding to write this particular book? Sure. Well, I like you. I love San Francisco. I've uh, been in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1993. I care a lot about people suffering from severe mental illness. My aunt suffered from schizophrenia. I worked on drug policy issues in the late 1990s. And around 2017, when the drug deaths rose to 70,000 per year, up from 17,000 in the year 2000, I started to ask whether the things I had previously believed and advocated for were, were part of the problem. And 
was had been mostly focused on the environment, but after my book last year became a bestseller, I used the opportunity to take a harder look at this question, and, and that's what resulted in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco in 1991, so you only came a couple of years after me, and um, it's it's quite an, an adjustment. I loved it, and I continue to love the city, although I did look on with uh, great dismay as I saw various policies that were quizzical, um, to say the very, very least. And there are various uh, agents and agencies that work in San Francisco, which um, for all of their good intentions, don't always seem to be the most organized of, uh, of entities. I'm thinking in particular of an organization that you may have heard about. I would be surprised if you hadn't called Food Not Bombs. And uh, it was an organization that was led by a particular um, uh, charismatic personality to a degree who would just set up shop sometimes in Moscone Center without you know any preparation distributing food. And of course, the authority would, authorities would say, you can't do this, um, you don't have permits, etc. And then they would be on KRON, Cron TV News, and, and the other affiliates, um, making a big issue of how they were being repressed. Meanwhile, there were very established and, um, in, as far as management, orthodox organizations um, in the city uh, that looked on askance and thought, like, why do they get all the attention when, in fact, there's better ways to do it? It would seem that a lot of your book is about the very similar thing. There are, there's better ways to do things than perhaps we have formally thought. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to understand, I think, is that the word homeless tends to conflate three groups of people. The first is the proverbial mother escaping an abusive husband. The second is someone addicted to hard drugs. And the third is somebody suffering from untreated mental illness. The last two groups, are uh, there's a lot of overlap, but we do a really good job taking care of the mother escaping an abusive husband who doesn't have an underlying drug or uh, drug problem or mental illness. It's, it's a propaganda word in the sense that it's designed to make you think that the problems that people on the street face are really just the result of poverty. And it's just not true. And it's a real disservice to the people on the street because they need something else, usually drug treatment, mental health, something other than just free housing. But really, the issue has been manipulated by people on the radical left to basically promote this idea that all we need to do is offer free apartments to people living on the street and the problem will take care of itself. Well, um, I'm, I'm curious because you invoked the phrase the radical left. Would you not, um, for those who aren't familiar with your progression of uh, outlook and thought, you would have declared yourself at some point perhaps to be a member of the radical left, Michael Schellenberger? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I would consider myself a member of the radical left and then, and then a progressive until, well, I'm not sure how, how recently, but certainly when I was a teenager and in my 20s. You know, the word progressive is a very clever word because it basically unites people on the radical left, socialists, anarchists, people that basically think the system is evil and has to be overthrown with more mainstream liberals who support the New Deal and support maybe universal health care. Two different groups of people in that one group thinks the system is basically corrupt and needs to be overthrown and another group that thinks the system is basically good and needs to be improved. But whole groups of activists that are, you know, say they represent the homeless, say they represent climate change, say they represent various causes, are basically advancing a radical left agenda 
using these these different issues as a way to to advance something that's much more radical and often doesn't have anything to do with those issues at all. So if you want to help people that are addicted to hard drugs, they need to be mandated treatment. You know, if you want to uh, help people that are suffering from untreated schizophrenia, they need psychiatric help. Giving people their own apartment is been part of a radical agenda, but it isn't really what the people on the street need. There is, um, in my observation of my time living in San Francisco, there are those who have to intermingle regularly with the homeless who can be sometimes quite frightening and scary, and those who don't. To your awareness, how much does proximity, access, direct access, and practical experience with problems affect people's outlooks of, uh, of a circumstance that they want to amend and help with the best of intentions? It has a huge impact, obviously. I mean, people that give money to homeless charities, they tend to have in their mind the the mother escaping an abusive husband. You know, there's even this idea there's pointing kids that are homeless. If you're just reading about homelessness through the newspaper or through a piece of direct mail that you receive from a charity, one's view of who the homeless are is pretty warped. But it's also the case that, you know, a lot of people who work with the homeless know perfectly well that the people that they're dealing with are suffering from severe addiction or mental illness and still oppose doing the kind of things that need to be done to help those people for strictly ideological reasons. There's some diversity here. I mean, there are cracks in the ideology where some of the light can shine through. So I, in the, in San Francisco, I really tried to quote and, and highlight progressives who recognize that this is a problem that is not being dealt with well. But for the most part, you know, the social service agencies, the people that go out and do homeless outreach, the people that work in government on this issue have all been advocating the policies that have made the problem worse. Well, what do you suppose is the remedy? I mean, what 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 are some of the key things that you would like to see uh, progressives and those who would not describe themselves as progressives perhaps uh, implement to make a bad situation at least better, if not perfect? I mean, I think that, you know, what I'm proposing is basically to do what every other developed nation has done. Part of the reason I wrote San Francisco, I was surprised to learn that what the European cities had done to deal with this problem was completely different from what progressives in the United States had claimed they had done. So I had a, I was in Amsterdam in, in 2019. I was giving a talk on energy and the environment, which is the issue that I've been most heavily focused on for the last 20 years. And I was with a member of parliament and she was like, oh, you might be interested in talking to my husband who works on drug policy. And I asked him, I was like, have you been to San Francisco? And he kind of goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, what is going on? Like, why do we have all these homeless people on the street? And there's nobody in the street in Amsterdam. And yet drugs are decriminalized. Prostitution is basically decriminalized. And Amsterdam is a very liberal city. Mm-hmm. Like it's, nobody would suggest that it's a right wing city. So what's going on? And he just said, look, you know, you got to have carrots and sticks. You have to have consequences for bad behavior, illegal behavior, behaviors that are incompatible with city life. And you have to have rewards for people. And San Francisco doesn't do that. So, you know, I discovered that there had been research on this issue. But basically, in the late 1980s, a number of European cities had what, what researchers call open drug scenes. That's the technical language for it 
we describe the exact same circumstances, but call it euphemistically homeless encampments, which makes it sound like it's a kind of, you know, camp out or, a, you know, some sort of a friendly collective that's just happens to be you know living on the street. In reality, these are people who, because of their addiction, and even when there's severe mental illness, there's often serious addiction going on. Because of their addiction, have have quit their jobs, have often stolen or borrowed money from family and friends, and overstayed their welcome, and been basically kicked out to the street just to maintain their addiction. I mean, when you're a hardcore heroin or meth addict, you're using hard drugs like every four hours. You're not, you can't work, it, or if you can, it's you know, it's real haphazard work that doesn't pay the bills. And you are so addicted that you want to live right in the open drug market. So an open drug scene is just, on the one hand, it's like a marketplace where buyers and sellers of drugs meet, but people end up living there. You know, so one of the characters in my book, he showed me in San Francisco, the doorwell that he used to sleep in. And he was like, you know, I would sleep here because I was so addicted that I didn't, I didn't want to walk the five blocks to the shelter to sleep at night. I just wanted to stay here. So basically it's pretty simple. You have to build sufficient shelters. You have to require people to stay in them in order to get housing. They have to earn it either through abstinence or through other things that they may need, depending on their circumstances. You just described aptly heroin addicts who cannot go four hours without injecting, and yet you say that they have to be able to earn um, the privilege of having housing. Exactly how, how do they do that? I mean, what's the exchange? Well, you would, first of all, you would make available for them drug treatment. So a lot of, if not most of the people on the street are breaking the law. I mean, they're camping publicly, which is illegal. They're using drugs publicly, which is illegal. They're often defecating publicly, which is illegal. So right now, when they get arrested, nothing happens to them, or we just stop arresting them, which is really what's happened in San Francisco. And LA. So the idea is that you would be arrested, you would be brought in front of a judge, and you would be given a choice. You can either go to jail or you can go into rehab. And if you go into rehab, you will be you will detox, you know, usually over a few days, and you can be tapered off with Suboxone, which is an opioid replacement. And I'm very practical about these things. So I think if people need to be on methadone or suboxone, which are mm -hmm. alternatives to heroin, then that's fine. You know, they can, these are, these are substitutes or, or, and there's also opioid blockers that allow people to get on with their lives and go to work and, and reaffiliate with their family and friends and live an independent life. I, I don't want to speak incorrectly because I, I don't know if that's still the case, but for some time in the Netherlands, heroin addicts were allowed to raise their children if they had children because they would go and get methadone or the equivalent um, uh, to be able to function. W would you be an advocate of the same thing, in, for instance, in San Francisco when, when you do have um, people who have produced offspring? Should they go into social services or should a parent with an addiction, in your estimation, be able to continue to, to raise them? Yeah, I mean, I advocate basically the Dutch model. And the Dutch model cleared the open drug scenes. It moved most people to methadone. And it was the same in other European cities, by the way. So it's not that different from other cities. There was a very small group of people 
under 150 people total that just could not quit heroin for whom methadone was not enough. And, and the government did have or does have heroin maintenance for those people. I'm fine with that, but I think it's worth pointing out that those are people for whom they really tried to, to get on methadone and try some alternatives that they're not just completely, you know, zonked out all day and, and, and incapacitated. They were, their, their lives were, were threatened. They were a threat to public safety because they couldn't quit. So small group of people, they did maintain on heroin, but very small. And yeah, I mean, the whole idea is to reaffiliate and rebuild the relationships that were destroyed between family and friends. And when we talk about the homeless, the two main characteristics are of addiction and what we call disaffiliation, which is the alienation from friends and family. Rebuilding that relationship is really is really important. I mean, if you had to sum it up, I would say my argument is that we've done a really bad job at the kind of gray area, the middle space in between doing nothing which is what we're doing in San Francisco right now and other progressive cities and just putting people in prison for a long time. There's a better way. You know, we have these, we now have these radio controlled or GPS controlled ankle bracelets where, you know, if you're convicted of a fine, you can wear a bracelet. There's also obviously drug tests to test people to make sure they're staying clean. These are all really great solutions. Um, you know, for site, you know, for people that are suffering from severe mental illness, there's injectable, long-acting antipsychotic medicines that last for 30 days. That that so, if you forget to take your meds or you convince yourself you don't need meds, you're still taking them. I view all of those as a huge improvement over prison for people, and certainly less expensive. But also, it allows parents to to be parents. You know, they may have an ankle bracelet on, but that's better than being in jail. But we find I find opposition to even those things from so-called progressives or the radical left, including the ACLU, for whom those are just completely intolerable deprivations of of individual liberty. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, your host, and I'm happy to say that Michael Schellenberger is my guest. His latest book is entitled San Francisco. Prior to this, you may know him for his work with the environment. Uh, Michael Schellenberger is the recipient of Time Magazine's Hero of the Environment Green Book Award winner. Uh, and he has written extensively on in environmental issues and uh, how to best handle them. Let's, let's go back and let me ask you, if I may, the, the idea, there, there's an element of accommodation here. All right. So you're saying, all right, well, for those who are addicted to um, heroin, then we will provide heroin. It reminds me of uh, a well-intended movement at one time uh, for people who had shopping carts. And there were the people who said, OK, well, why don't we purchase shopping carts for the homeless? And in Los Angeles and elsewhere and San Francisco, people are actually purchasing shopping carts where they bought them. I don't know uh, for the homeless. At what point does accommodation become just a persistent handicap? Very quickly. I mean, almost immediately. One of the things that comes out of the, the, the scholarly literature is that providing a lot of homeless, homeless services in a particular neighborhood attracts a lot of homeless. So as soon as you build porta potties or provide washing stations or provide services to homeless encampments, you're legitimizing the encampments and you're inviting more people to live in them. That's the wrong approach. We need to have sufficient shelter and require people to stay in them. That's just, I think, fundamental here. It's got it. You have to have a shelter first policy whereby 
other things are earned. So, you know, a lot of people, when they're in the shelter system, they want their own private apartment. Who doesn't want that? Um, but that's something that you should earn through progress on your personal plan. You're taking your psychiatric medicines, you're abstinent from hard drugs, you're going to your work. And those are rewards for positive behaviors. They're not just given away. But you can't have open, I mean, open drug scenes and cities are just incompatible. They attract, you know, these are people that are feeding their addiction. They're often committing crimes. It's obviously not sanitary. 1996, Larkin Street, we got the brand new library, uh, which was umpteen million dollars worth of, you know, uh, materials invested in it. Uh, At the library at that time, and I think the number still maintains, there's 240 public computers for people to use. The homeless were going in, and I don't think anyone in principle would object to homeless people using books and what have you. But because they could go for 15 or 20 or 30-minute increments, use the computers, many of them were looking at pornography and, um, shall we say, self-satisfying themselves. <laughs> and I remember, I, I can't recall, so I don't want to impugn anyone's reputation, but I, I don't know if it was a city councilman or somebody, but I saw them on the news and they were defending this. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is complete uh, the complete nadir of social social cohesion. I mean, it it made no sense that we were supposed to, the the general taxpaying public of San Francisco was supposed to allow and accommodate for people to pleasure themselves in a public library, whether children and other family people looking at porn with no intervention. And it was at that point that you begin to say, you know, something is terribly awry here. Um, Does that type of thing still go on? Oh, it's, of course, it's all gotten worse. And, you know, I try to understand it and where it's coming from ideologically. And basically, it comes from this idea that the so-called homeless, again, a propaganda word, you know, street addicts, mentally ill people are victims of the system and that victims should be given everything and nothing should be required of them. So that's the basic view, and it's just as dumb as it sounds. I wish that there was more more sophistication to it that I could share with you, but that's basically all it is. It's defended in highly emotional language where anybody who questions it is demonized as somebody who hates poor people or hates people that are addicted to drugs. I mean, I documented in the book how frequently, and it was in part because they did it with me, how frequently so-called advocates for the homeless, who again, these are just radical left activists declaring themselves advocates for the homeless, how often they would accuse their opponents of saying things that caused violence against the homeless. They did it with me. Actually, there's two people. One of them said, what you wrote, you did it because you are just trying to get rich. And it causes violence against people on the street. And then another person said, the questions you're asking are the questions that result in violence against people on the streets. I mean, it's such an outrageous accusation and so ridiculous. And yet it affected me. And I'm a sensitive person, but I think it affects a lot of people because, you know, we're all very concerned about people on the street. I mean, we care about those people. And so to be accused of doing anything that would hurt them or of having some malevolent intentions, it really has an impact. And so I documented that this was a strategy that's been used for decades against everybody, journalists, politicians. And other organizations that try and help. I'll give you an example. Um, When this whole issue of, you know, uh, food, not bombs, 
they would disparagingly speak of well-established organizations like the Salvation Army. Now, the Salvation Army started in 1865 in London, and today it's in over 132 countries. But let's just go back to the United States in particular. It provides shelters and uh, also uh, disaster relief, but it works extensively with, with women, with battered women and children and men. Each day, each day, Michael, it provides over 156,000 meals in the United States. And yet you get a gaggle of, you know, 25 kids in Moscone Center who would deride and say disparaging things about this well-established organization that's been in the U.S. since 1880. I'll give you one more example. Um, Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. Um, they provide over 900 beds, always have at least 500 people sleeping there each night. They've been founded since 1877. And yet you'll have Mayor Lightfoot and others failing to acknowledge, although this city relies on Pacific Garden Mission, failing to acknowledge the contribution that they make just to ensure that the city will function. Yeah, that's you got it exactly right. I mean, basically what you have is you have groups like Salvation Army, which, by the way, works for the Dutch government, does a terrific job. Salvation Army addresses the individuals because this problem of people that are suffering from addiction and mental yes. illness. So yeah. Salvation Army treats the individuals. Food Not Bombs says, oh, no, this is not a problem of individuals. This is a problem of the system, the evil capitalist militaristic system, hence Food Not Bombs, which is exploiting people, property is theft. And, and anybody who suggests that this is a problem of individuals is part of the is part of the victimization process. I mean, it's the same on basically all of these issues. You know, I saw I saw the exact same thing on climate change, where it's like, well, we know how to reduce carbon emissions. You switch from coal to natural gas or nuclear. Instead, there's the group say, no, no, we have to overthrow capitalism. I mean, it's. It's pretty juvenile, actually. It's why I think it appeals to a lot of us when we're young people. It's why a lot of us that we're attracted to it as young people as we get older and we actually care about solving the problem rather than, you know, gaining some emotional power over our peers mm. kind of go, we need to help the people that are suffering from addiction and mental illness and overthrowing capitalism is not the right goal. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, maybe we would like to have universal health care. I mean, that's a reasonable debate, but that's not even what they're after. And like Food Not Bombs does not exactly have a plan for overthrowing capitalism. It might shock you, um, but they just are out there to be disruptive and to get attention and, and to feel powerful. But unfortunately, they're using the people on the streets as pawns in their own rather petty political games. Well, I'm reminded of the words of Anthony Burgess, who, amongst other things, wrote uh, A Clockwork Orange. And he said, when it comes to youth, they have energy, but not necessarily wisdom. And uh, I, I think that surmises the good intentions of, of some who are part of that movement. You invoke the names of interesting persons in your work, one of which is Viktor Frankl. Uh, what was the attraction and what was the um, purpose of bringing up Viktor Frankl in your book? Well, I, thank you for asking. I love Viktor Frankl. So Viktor Frankl, as many people may know, but many people don't, was a, an Austrian psychiatrist in the 1930s and 40s. He really 1930s. 
he developed an alternative to traditional Freudian psychoanalysis to treat people suffering from depression, college students, actually, high school and college students in Vienna, for whom psychoanalysis wasn't working. And Viktor Frankl, you know, there's a lot of kids that were actually committing suicide at the time. And Viktor Frankl said, you know, we need to figure out what it would take for kids to want to live, for college students and others to want to live, since depressed people really are losing their desire for living. And, and so he would ask them, somewhat provocatively, why don't you kill yourself? <laughs> Sounds terrible, but yes, it, it was such a provocation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think once they got over their shock, they would say, uh, well, you know, I hope to be an engineer when I grow up or a medical doctor or I want to marry my girlfriend or, you know, well, it would devastate my parents and I love my parents. And in the process, they would get back in touch with like their goals, their purpose in life. And Frankel, then the twist of the story, of course, that Frankel gets sent to the concentration camps because he's Jewish, separated from his wife and his parents. He survives the camps by putting his own philosophy at work, which is to have a goal. And so the goal was to survive the camps, write a book about the experience and reunite with his wife and parents. And he survived. He did that. He survived the camps. His wife was had been killed by the Nazis. His parents were killed by the Nazis. He then dedicated himself to finding you know, a new life partner and writing his book. And his book became Man's Search for Meaning, which is, became a global bestseller, 10, 10 million copies, I think, or more. And I was so struck by the love for Viktor Frankl among progressives, lefties, liberals in the 60s, including in Berkeley and San Francisco. And yet when you apply Frankl's philosophy to your to social policy or to political life, progressives would say it's blaming the victim. In other words, if you say, you know, look, you, you know, you have to have a goal. You got to get up every day and pursue your goal. That sounds a lot like what progressives condemn as bootstrapism or just kind of, you know, self-reliance. It's not, by the way, because, of course, Viktor Frankl thinks it's important to have a network of to have a life partner and friends and social life. But nonetheless, it's condemned by the radical left. And so that was the question I wanted to ask, which is why did progressives embrace self-help in their private lives, but reject it politically? If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am sincerely delighted to have as my guest Michael Schellenberger. Many of you will know Michael Schellenberger primarily from his work uh, regarding the environment. His prior work, Apocalypse Never, has been translated into no less than 15 languages, including French, German, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Korean, Hebrew, Lithuanian, Czech, and Slavic, and Polish. I suspect that something very similar will happen with his latest work, which is entitled San Francisco, and its subtitle is Why Progressives Ruin Cities. You know, those are fighting words there, fella, for a lot of people. And um, what I want to know, is there anyone who was adamantly opposed to you, perhaps passionately, you know, the kind of individual that they wake up in the morning thinking, you know, I hope, I don't wish this on you, Michael, but, you know, I hate Michael Schellenberger. And they go to bed at night going, I hate Michael Schellenberger and everything he represents. Uh, have there been any that have come around and perhaps um, uh, made an overture to you? Uh, perhaps not totally agreeing with you, but said, you know, you, you're really causing me to reconsider. Uh, has that happened? 
Well, yeah, it's funny that you ask because I just got an email this morning from somebody who is a assistant professor. I'm not going to say where because he wrote me in confidence, but he said, I've been reading your book with the expectation of it making me really angry, but honestly, I've been enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't want to say what he's working on specifically because that would potentially give him away. But yeah, I mean, I I am finding very interesting reactions. Of course, there's been some hostile reactions from many people. But, you know, people that read the book are going to be surprised because I am less a part of the narrative in San Francisco than I was in Apocalypse Never. Apocalypse Never really is a book that came out of 20 years, 25 years of environmental work. San Francisco is was more in my peripheral vision. I had worked on drug issues in the late 1990s, including for George Soros, but I hadn't really been involved for 20 years. And so I was able to go back and interview all my old comrades. They actually, they all talked to me. Um, I interviewed very radical folks and found a lot of pragmatism, you know, cracks in the ideology are where the light shines in. And so I did, you know, for example, one of the biggest surprises in San Francisco is that I discovered that it was homeless advocates, so-called homeless advocates, who were responsible for depriving the shelter system of sufficient funding to build enough shelters to shelter all the homeless people. How's that? You that's might interesting. Think, oh, well, that's bizarre. But it is the bizarre. Reason is, the reason is, is because they insisted that all the money go into housing, which is much more expensive, mm. out of this really dogmatic belief that everybody has a right to housing, um, which is pretty outrageous if you think about it. But nonetheless, I did find people that basically said, yeah, that's ridiculous, including pretty radical folks. I mean, I think the other thing is that we're in the midst of the beginning of a pretty significant backlash against cancel culture, woke religion, the radical left. I just think a lot of people felt like the events last year went too far. So I think we're at the beginning of what could be a very positive and creative reshuffling of ideas and openness to people thinking, you know, we really just had a panic last year. I mean, one of the things I write about in San Francisco is it's not just drugs and homelessness. You know, I have three chapters on homicide, chapters on crime. Mm. I talk about how the Seattle City Council let a group of out of town and unaccountable anarchists take over a downtown neighborhood in Seattle. Yes. It's a bizarre situation. And, you know, I was the first person to get the full story because I interviewed the former police chief, a black woman who was basically forced out by the city council for shutting down the anarchist protest area. She was essentially broken. I mean, you could even see that on the the sound bites and she was just beside herself broken. I mean, I'm waiting for her to come out with a major book. Uh, I hope that she does. She is going to do that, I think. Yeah, Carmen Beth is her name. Yes, let me ask you, if I, if I may, Michael, um, you invoked a name that will cause some people's teeth to go on edge immediately. And you said you worked for George Soros. Um, did you meet him? And if so, what was your impression? I did. I was on a panel with him. I did meet him briefly, but I was not as close with him, of course. There's a character in my book who is the main guy who oversaw Soros's drug decriminalization work. Mm-hmm. You know, George is... A very, very, the first thing is he's very, very rich. So he's shielded from all of the stuff that happens on the streets, completely shielded, doesn't see it. 
Like a lot of rich people, like a lot of progressives, people that are ideological, he's in a cocoon, a bubble, so he doesn't probably get exposed to counter information. And so for, you know, Soros, I quote his main person, a guy named Ethan Nadelman, who, who, you know, worked for and directed Soros money for 20 years. And Ethan says, you know, Soros is a businessman. He felt like there was demand for this product, meaning illicit drugs, and people should have access to them. And I think that's really naive. I mean, you're talking, I mean, these drugs, this is, I mean, first of all, alcohol is a very strong drug. And so when people go, oh, well, alcohol is a strong drug, therefore we should make other strong drugs more widely available. I just kind of go, that's nuts. I mean, heroin, fentanyl, which is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin and responsible now for half of the 96,000 deaths that we saw last year. Methamphetamine, which is totally more, way more intense than it was even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. These are incredibly intoxicating, addicting, and debilitating drugs. Um, it's not obvious that they should be legal. I mean, you you, uh, you have people like Robert Downey Jr., for instance, who struggle with this. And, and we've all seen, I think, the clip which is available on YouTube where he says to the judge, you know, please put me away because if you don't, it's like putting a, a metal uh, gun to my mouth and I'm going to pull my own trigger. Uh, and we know that he rebounded, obviously, Iron Man in many mm-hmm. ways more than just a comic book. Uh, and his attitude is like, you know, what, you we want to make it easier for people to kill themselves? Uh, that's his standpoint. So it's 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 very intriguing to hear certain persons who have been through that agony, uh, their vantage uh, regarding the whole issue when they've come out the other side of it. Absolutely. And, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is just one of many recovering addicts who say they needed to be arrested, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, of course, we've had in our culture for at least 100 years this understanding that people that are suffering from serious addiction needed some kind of intervention. We have an entire TV show called a reality show called intervention Uh about intervening in the lives of addicts. Uh I have, you know, I have three friends from high school that suffered serious uh, addiction problems. Two of them are now dead. The third one has said to mutual friends that he feels like he needs to be on probation and he does to avoid causing harm to himself or others. This shouldn't be that hard to understand, but I think that Americans in particular, we just love our freedom so much. I love my freedom. You know, I can't stand restrictions on my freedoms. Um, but this is different. This is a, and it's a difficult illness to understand because it's an illness that does require some deprivation of people's personal liberties. I'm not proposing, and I don't know anybody who is, that we arrest people because they're addicts. I think what we're proposing is simply that if you are breaking the law, that we should enforce the law and that we should have the ability of the judge to sentence you to treatment or rehab as an alternative to incarceration, but not as not where either of them are optional. You have suggested that in San Francisco, uh, and we presume elsewhere across the land, that once you're declared a victim, then nothing is required of you at all. Um, so we all know that people are very, very willing to take on victim status uh, because it will bypass responsibility. To what extent, though, can we expect addicts to assume responsibility for themselves or others? Very little. 
I mean, I, I think there's obviously high functioning addicts in society. And to the extent to which the people are high functioning addicts, then I don't think the society should intervene. In other words, I think that other laws have to be broken, like public drug use, public camping, public defecation, theft, shoplifting. But I don't think that should be a priority. And I think that means that we have to accept some amount of self-destruction as a consequence. But I just think that is where the line should be drawn in terms of civil liberties. But, you know, I still hear some, there's still a fair number of conservatives with whom I agree with on a fair number of issues, but who will say things like the homeless are homeless as a matter of choice. And I don't really agree with that either. I think that their addiction is what compels them to basically destroy their relationships with family and friends and live on a tent in the street. I don't think it's accurate to call choices that addicted people make free choices. Their choices made as a, a consequence of their mental illness. Uh, is there a danger of us aiding and abetting people uh, to do acts of crime? I'm thinking about, obviously, as we've all heard in the last few months, San Francisco in particular, allowing Walgreens and other, um, uh, you know, right aid and places like that to have uh, theft up to $900 without any prosecution whatsoever. So we've all seen the videotapes of people just running in with garbage bags taking things off the shelf, uh, knowing, calculating very carefully with security guards no less looking on, knowing that they've got just under $900 worth of merchandise that they can walk out scot-free because no one's going to do anything. Um, of, of what benefit is that to anybody, including the persons perpetrating it? <laughs> Absolutely none. Their only reason that they allow it to continue is because the people that are committing the crimes are viewed as victims and the people they're committing the crimes against are viewed as the system. So what is it, like seven or eight uh, drugstores have just closed down? I mean, I, I, I used to live in the oh, Sunset, yeah. uh, Irving and Lawton and all that area, and there were quite a few pharmacies. And as I understand now, they're, <laughs> they're gone. You know, um, this is not good. No. And, you know, it's funny because the one of the supervisors who represents one of the districts where a Walgreens was just announced for closure, you know, they find themselves uh struggling to justify their position and they end up kind of blaming Walgreens or accusing Walgreens of making up reasons that aren't true for why the store shouldn't be there but it's very confused because you know obviously like one thing they say is well Walgreens was going to shut down a bunch of stores anyway well that that's true but they had actually already completed the store closure for efficiency reasons that they had planned but even if they were deciding to shut down the stores for a variety of other reasons. They're clearly shutting down stores that have been hit hard by shoplifting. I mean, nobody denies that these stores are being shoplifted against. So, you know, what's incredible is that there is no major politician in San Francisco or California that has even proposed repealing this law. I mean, that's how far gone they are because they're so committed to the idea that the people that are shoplifting, street addicts, homeless, are all victims of a system and the system is somehow, you know, bad or evil. Like I said, I think we're at the beginning of a backlash, but it certainly hasn't yet occurred when it comes to this issue. My guest is Michael Schellenberger. Uh, he is the author of a book about San Francisco, but a lot more actually, called San Francisco, 
Why Progressives Ruin Cities. And before you take offense, perhaps, or object to the title, or more in particular the subtitle, you need to know that this man has been on, on a, quite a pilgrimage in many ways. I, I do want to ask you, if you don't mind me saying this, is the subtitle perhaps a mistake? And I'll tell you why. Um, are we frustrating the ability for us just to look at an issue and to say, how do we remedy it? by immediately gravitating to these polarization labels. How do we get to the point that we disavow, if you will, our badges, we rip them off and we say, okay, let's look at the problem here. What's, how, as you've done, you know, Amsterdam has tried this, you know, uh, Portugal has tried this, Lisbon has tried this, etc. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, my sister objected to the subtitle, you know, <laughs> she's progressive. She lives in Boston. And she was like, you know, in Boston, progressives aren't like they are in San Francisco. You know, it's different. And to some extent, she's right. The East Coast doesn't have the big or hasn't had the big open drug scenes that we've had. You know, um, I say what I say in the book is, you know, this these titles, I'm obviously, I think, very hard about the subtitle title and the subtitles. They're really accurate. They really describe what the book is about. So, I'm not suggesting that progressives always ruin cities. I'm not suggesting that conservatives never ruin them. But I am saying that when progressives ruin cities, they do so in the same ways and for the same reasons, really everywhere in the world. I mean, one of the things I discovered is that before Amsterdam shut down the open drug scenes, it did the same thing we did, we're doing in San Francisco, which is just to allow public camping, public drug use, and just doing what they call helping only services. You know, since the since the I finished the book earlier this year, we now there is now an open drug scene in Boston. My mm. sister sent me a Boston Globe article that was really interesting to read because it described the so-called homeless encampment as a function of addiction, you know, as a consequence of the opioid epidemic. It was a it was mixed. It was like uh, it, were, it was sort of described it as a consequence of opioid addiction and homelessness, but it was much more honest than the media coverage has been in California. So, you know, partly you write books because there's complexity here and there's a lot to it. And you need three chapters on crime. You need three chapters on mental illness. You need three chapters on drugs. Uh, I agree that people, a lot of people are just, you know, closed minded people aren't going to read the book. That's, but that's always going to be the case. I will say, you know, when my sister read it, her reaction was, okay, I agree. It's about drugs, <laughs> drugs and untreated mental illness. I think if I had to say it really simply, I would say, you know, conservatives have been more right about the nature of the problem than liberals, but liberals have made a very good point about the solution, which is that you need to have universal psychiatric care. Like you can't solve this without mm -hmm. expanding the number of psychiatric beds, the number of drug treatment facilities, the amount of rehab. And that might be the best way to do that might be single payer. I'm not dogmatic about how you do it. The Dutch, I will say the Dutch have a private sector insurance model similar to ours. They make sure that everybody's covered. The Canadians have a single payer healthcare system. And in Vancouver, which is the West Coast, the progressive West Coast city in British Columbia, Canada, they have the exact same problems that we have in San Francisco and Portland and Seattle and Los Angeles. You know, I think that traditional left and right are not particularly helpful here. Mm. In the case of San Francisco, 
you know, you can't blame what's going on in San Francisco on conservatives nor on moderates because the people in charge are by their own definition progressives. Again, I wrote San Francisco. It's got 1200 or something footnotes. I basically was like, look, you know, here's the evidence that it doesn't have to be this way. I, I And I chose Amsterdam as my model city very deliberately. I had some people say, well, what about other American cities? And I was like, you know, we're snobs in San Francisco. We really are. We really think that we live in the best place on earth. I do. Mm-hmm. And we're not we're not eager to be getting advice from San Antonio or Miami or God forbid, New York, you know, which we look down upon. So I chose Amsterdam because I think it's a glamorous, it's a cosmopolitan yes. city. Yeah. And I think it shows that you can have very, very liberal policies, including the decriminalization of drugs and prostitution and, and not have open air drug scenes, crime and untreated mental illness on the streets. Michael, what was the most emotionally impacting facet to writing this book, either an encounter with a person or a realization that you made? Oh, this Thank you for asking. This was actually an extremely difficult book emotionally to write. I was very impacted by the people I interacted with, the stories. I mean, the worst was You know, I went to Los Angeles and shadowed a street doctor on Skid Row. We treated a man who was, you know, on a mattress, um, almost certainly had underlying mental illness. And I I hardly, sometimes these stories, I don't even want to describe them because they're just so horrible. And I'm gentle with my readers because I didn't want to turn them off. But suffice it to say, he had a condition on his legs that was extremely painful and dangerous and while the doctor was taking was it care gangrene of him, or something like that? Yeah, it was basically open sores mm-hmm. on his on his legs, um, and infected, and all the rest. And you know, it was interesting. A Latino man about my age, the bald head and tattoos, kind of a tough looking guy. He walks by and he goes, "That guy should be in a hospital, man," and kind of angry, almost at us. You know, and I was kind of scared a little bit. And then, but then he was gone. And then he comes back and he goes. He goes, you know, that guy's been there for weeks, you know, and why is nobody doing anything? And I was so touched by it because I think that a lot of people express anger at the current situation. And the truth is, we're just really upset. It's just and one of the worst, nastiest things that so-called advocates for the homeless do is they accuse people that are upset about the situation on the street of not caring about the people on the street and simply being concerned about like aesthetics or something. And it's like, no, like we don't want to see people on the street because we have empathy Hmm. and, and Hmm. it's such a manipulation. So I found myself very emotional around this book, Um, sad about the situation on the street, frustrated at the inaction and angry at, you know, really an ideology and out of a kind of civilizational decline that has basically got itself in a situation where we have defended and protected what is a completely immoral, and, you know, it's a strong word to use, especially for liberals and liberal audiences, but it's a completely immoral situation and absolutely has to be changed. What is, for all of these maladies, homelessness, drug addiction, crime. What is the most loving thing to do in your estimation? Mm. 
Well, I think the most loving thing to do is to demand shelter first, treatment first, housing earned. In California, we're calling it CalPsych, but we have to, you, you have to shut down the open drug scenes. There's just no, you cannot, civilized societies cannot allow open air drug markets and open air drug scenes. It's just, it's not compatible with with civilization, it's not compatible with human values or basic humanity. And that's what's at stake. It's our shared humanity is at stake. And if we don't shut these these open drug scenes down, then we're lost. Michael Schellenberger, I seek, we seek, uh, my producer and I, Gina Gamboni, we seek people who represent sometimes the curious, but hopefully always the best in the American character. And I think you exemplify that. I'm so grateful for you being on Watching America. His latest book is entitled San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. You will find that it's nuanced and careful and respectful and ultimately loving. Michael Schellenberger, thank you so very much for being a part of this program. And uh, I wish you great blessings. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Previous editions of Watching America are always available. Simply go to your search engine and type NPR space Watching America. Watching America can also be found by verbal command on many devices. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.